Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. I'm Learn Dr. more at spiritlikewellness.org. We'll be talking about Welcome to the, the Spirit Like Wellness podcast and part one of three and how of our series on the neuroscience of addiction with Dr. John Ewing and, and Kathy Kocher. So let's review briefly what we know about substance use. Uh, Basically, people use substances to get high. Well, the way this works is that the substances activate what we call the reward or seeking system. Now, this seeking system has some degree of baseline activity. Uh, when it's uh, not very active, we might just be relaxed and thinking about things and considering ideas, but we're not doing anything. Uh, at a normal level of activity, we're up uh, executing our plans and we put a lot of uh, routines on autopilot and we carry on with consulting our plans and take, carrying out the next step. Um, so then if we use a substance which activates this reward system, which is in the medial forebrain bundle, um, the substances of abuse all will trigger the release of dopamine and the dopamine will will cause extra activity in the seeking or reward system so the body has homeostatic mechanisms to regulate the degree of activity in this reward or uh, seeking system so when the substance drives the release of dopamine up above normal then a compensatory mechanism starts to engage, which is the increase of dynorphin. Uh, so this then causes there to be less and less of a high, and the dysphoric after effects become more intense and longer lasting. And so it's these dysphoric after effects that then become uh, something that people desire to escape, and this helps to drive the substance use disorder. So now let's talk about endorphins. And uh, basically, opiates imitate endorphins. So when we're talking about the physiologic effects of uh, opiates, uh, we can also talk about the effects of endorphins. In fact, endorphins means endogenous morphine, which is uh, something that the brain produces. So the main source of uh, beta endorphin is this molecule called pro-opiomelanocortin, which is also the source of ACTH, which regulates cortisol production. Cortisol uh, can dampen our response to stress, and it dampens inflammation. Many of you have used uh, uh, prednisone cream, uh, and um, so... Uh, we know because of its source that endorphins are linked to this stress and, and inflammatory response regulation system. So the opiates will dampen the release of, I'm sorry, will dampen the effects of adrenaline and boost the release of dopamine. So morphine got its name because it can cause sleepiness. Morpheus is the shaper of dreams. To morph is to shape. And so 
The mechanism for this is that the opiate dampens the effects of adrenaline. And this is in fact how people overdose. The body compensates by increasing adrenaline levels. And then this results in your classic withdrawal symptoms, goosebumps, sweating, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and ficking uh, legs. Um, and that's where kick the habit came from. So the other way that the body and brain adapts to repeated opiate use is to dial up this substance called dynorphin. So dynorphin partially blocks the mu opiate receptor, which is what the opiate uses to uh, uh, dampen the response to pain and to boost the release of dopamine. Um, and dynorphin also activates the kappa opiate receptor. So dynorphin partially blocks the mu opiate receptor and uh, also uh, uh, blocks the kappa, I'm sorry, activates the kappa opiate receptor. So the kappa opiate receptor, when it's activated, it inhibits dopamine release and sensitizes the spinal cord to pain. And so once again, homeostatic processes engage when we give our patients opiates and this decreases the effectiveness of opiates. Uh, the dynorphin partially blocks the effects of our opiate pain medication. And then the dynorphin blocks the euphoric effect, which is the increased dopamine. So now let's talk about another system that is, that is closely aligned with this, and that is the panic slash grief system. So we'll be talking about uh, uh, the reward slash seeking system, the fear system, uh, rage or anger, and uh, we'll also be talking about the care system and then this panic slash grief system. So the panic slash grief system evolved out of our pain system and it's in common in birds and mammals. So it's something that we share. Uh, it's part of our evolutionary uh, heritage. So if the young mammal or bird senses abandonment, then the panic slash grief system activates and this results in distress cries. Now, because it evolved out of our pain system, the panic grief system is loaded with opiate receptors. So the activity of this system is dampened by opiates. And um, so if we give baby squirrels small amounts of opiates, they are less reactive when abandoned. And so what this translates to when people are using opiates and getting high, and very often other substances of abuse, their social engagement can drop because that's just not as important to them anymore. So again, this panic slash grief system is not like on or off, but it has a baseline level of activity that promotes us being curious about and wanting to be around other people and then panic and grief if we feel like we're abandoned. So this panic slash grief system not only has op opiate receptors that are sensitive to endorphins, but that are also sensitive to dynorphin. So when dynorphin levels are elevated, uh, that 
activates this panic slash grief system. So when people who have used opiates repeatedly are in a state of withdrawal, that panic slash grief system is activated. And so this is a general mechanism. Now the panic slash grief system can create these overwhelming feelings that you must do something to fix this situation. And um, so if attachment is restored, then our young mammal or our young bird uh, engages the care system, which is like, oh, a puppy. And the activation of the care system dampens activity in this panic slash grief system. However, if the relationship is not restored, then fear can rise. And as fear rises, it silences distress cries. And so then we have, uh, in adults, we see this increasing internal dialogue about feelings of inadequacy and decreased self-esteem. Uh, fear then can lead to anger and rage. And when this is activated, this starts up all sorts of head noise and thoughts about how you're being treated unfairly and how wrong these people are for not accepting you and not seeing you for the wonderful pe person that you are. And um, uh, so then over time, that rage then uh, can evolve into disdain for the very people that you wanted to connect with. And eventually even some people will develop disdain for people who still think they need affection and attachment to others. So this shows up then in our relationships with others. When the panic grief system is activated, uh, oftentimes people will engage in anxious attachment strategies and modify their appearance or change their behavior so that they can be more attractive to and fit in with the person that they're wanting to maintain a relationship with. Uh, when the avoidance strategies with decreased self-esteem kick in, when the fear system is activated, then that can occupy people's attention to such an extent that it prevents them from social engagement and the risk of social defeat. And studies have shown that social defeat results in increased dynorphin, which further activates that panic slash grief system. So then, of course, with prolonged uh, uh, activation of the panic grief system, fear activates and then the rage system. And the rage system can then preoccupy people with thoughts about how this isn't fair and, and these people uh, are just not right. They don't understand, et cetera, et cetera. And this, again, can create thought streams that prevent the person from uh, risking social defeat and by uh, engaging in social interaction. So the, the uh, use of substances of abuse increases activity in these systems in two ways. Uh, adrenaline increases uh, activity in the fear and rage systems. 
and adaptation to opiates because the opiates dampen the response to adrenaline can involve increased adrenaline and that drives this fear slash rage system. Uh, also, alcohol dampens the effects of adrenaline and so the body makes more adrenaline. So another feature of alcohol is that it dampens the effects of glutamate, which is an activating neurotransmitter. And we can think of that as powering the intensity of the various things that we think about and ruminate about. So when people feel overwhelmed with lots and lots of thought streams, that's the definition of sadness, which is to be full. And so it's not unexpected that people might reach for a substance to slow that back down. So with alcohol, uh, alcohol dampens glutamate and the body responds by increasing the number of glutamate receptors. So then during uh, acute and post-acute alcohol withdrawal, we see this driving rumination, which is very intense and, uh, and can be overwhelming. And so these are the basic mechanisms by which uh, substance use impacts social engagement in our relationships. Um, so I was hoping to get some comments from Kathy about what she's observed and how we might use this information to help our patients. That's a lot of information, John. It's amazing how all these chemicals just nest together and make these things happen and compensate and all of that. Um, there are a couple thoughts that were running through my mind while you were talking. Um, one of them was around early attachment issues with children and how we used to see this, this almost predictable constellation of behaviors that I think were fear-based. Um, fire setting, cruelty to animals, and um, inappropriate, um, oh, I can't think of the word, voiding and uh, urinary incontinence and fecal incontinence in inappropriate places. I, there's another word for it, but I can't think of it right now. And <clears throat> as you were talking, I was thinking, well, how does that fit in? How does that fit? And then when you got to the fear and grief part, I thought, oh yeah, if you're under intense fear, that would make, that would maybe make sense that those behaviors would be, be in that. And then the social aspect, I mean, so many times we work with people to help them stop using. And when we, when we start seeing real change is when they're in a social setting, a, a peer group or a treatment group, but just something about, about the socialization within that group setting when there's a common issue, either a common <clears throat> mental health issue or a common um, addiction. Some would say they're the, they're the same, but in Wisconsin, we, we treat them somewhat differently. But that's where we see the change happen. So it's really helpful to understand the mechanism of why that happens. That in treating someone and encouraging them to not use and then providing social opportunities, that seems, does that, am I, am I hearing you correctly that, that that kind of one 
supports the other? Or am I missing yeah. something? Yes, yes. Uh, one of the things that I uh, forgot to mention is that the reward slash seeking system is not just about dopamine. That yes, it releases dopamine, which goes in particular to the frontal lobes, and it can actually suppress frontal lobe activity. But that seeking or reward system also sends serotonin out to the rest of the brain. And so serotonin, we can think of that as promoting social engagement and also as adding color to our thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the black and white, dim, can't quite rub your synapses together, uh, gray that many people have experienced the morning after uh, the walk of shame. <laughs> so, yeah, now when we look then at depression and we say, well, what is going on? We might see decreased activation of the seeking slash reward system with a decrease in dopamine and a decrease in serotonin. Uh, we also, um, it turns out that uh, dopamine sent to the frontal lobes can uh, increase glutamate activity. And so this is why when that reward system or seeking system is uh, disengaged and the activity is low, uh, people uh, just aren't as busy in their head. They have that bleh feeling. Uh, so social defeat can decrease serotonin levels. So social defeat uh, can boost dynorphin levels, which inhibits reward slash seeking, uh, decreases uh, glutamate activity, and decreases serotonin. So then people have less rumination, and the rumination is more often in black and white, uh, not uh, not very colorful. Um, so yeah, it's, it is impressive how these things nest together. So one aspect of this system is that what we call depression is actually a variety of things. Uh, that if the uh, panic slash grief system is chronically activated, it's going to activate fear and rage, which are both increased from adrenaline and activation of these can increase adrenaline. Um, and then the um, increase in dynorphin from social defeat results in inhibition of that seeking slash reward system. Okay, so you're, you're using the term social defeat a lot, and I'm not confident that I understand what you mean by that. Do you mean isolation, or do you mean failed attempts at socialization? Failed attempts at socialization is, is most of what I mean. Uh, so social defeat is uh, where you're playing ball with two other people, and they quit throwing you the ball. That's the classic... Okay. Uh, experiment or condition to demonstrate social defeat. So it, exclusion. Exclusion. Uh, it hurts. And it hurts a lot. And it hurts because it activates that panic slash grief system, 
which evolved out of our pain system. Right. And so we feel this, this uh, social rejection as actual pain. Okay. Uh, so then as a, as a psychotherapist, if I'm working with someone <clears throat> who I've identified as being in this process, as having this dynamic, and I want them to have some sort of social intervention, I'm going to need to be really careful to make sure that that is a successful social intervention, that I'm not setting that person up for more social defeat, which would then be reinforcing the negative behaviors. That is quite correct. Okay, just wanted to make sure I was understanding correctly, because a lot of times we have you know, we set up groups, we send people to, um, I'm going to use uh, a popular program in the addiction circles that involves steps. And one of the things that they, they frequently comes to a meeting and they don't like it or they experience social defeat, say, go to a different clubhouse, go to a different meeting, find the place that has a good fit, find a place where you can have social success. They don't use those words, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we we some people have anxiety about their place in a group and might um, dominate the conversation. Uh, and they also might see newcomers as challenges, challengers to their place in the group. Uh, and then there's this tough love stuff that some people, unfortunately, were raised with, which mm -hmm. is, um, you know, we have to break you down and humiliate you. Uh, you must claim that you are an alcoholic or addict or whatever. And then once you've thoroughly admitted your helplessness and, and weakness, then we will start to, to help you. But first, you have to be way down there. And a lot of people don't really enjoy that. And I think it does have to do with this uh, social defeat mechanism. Nobody wants that. Right. Whereas the care, the care system likely dampens the panic slash grief system. So when you encounter people that have compassion and that connect with you, that dampens that panic grief system, which can drive so much of the substance use behaviors and uh, so much of the depression that we see. That makes sense. I've, <clears throat> I've I, you know, I'm of an age where I grew up hearing, you know, you got to hit your bottom, you got to be at rock bottom. And I think there is a benefit to being at rock bottom because the only way to move forward is to move up. But I agree with you that forcing someone to rock bottom, I don't think is a good thing. And now, now I kind of have a better sense of why, because it's just replicating that neurotransmitter function that got you there in the first place. Yeah. So <clears throat> I love the idea of meeting people where they're at providing support, encouragement, um, non-judgmental, uh, honest praise, uh, finding the good and the positive in actions and behaviors. Uh, because sometimes people do things that are pretty reprehensible, 
but their motives are good. Their intent was noble. And so recognizing the noble intent and the negative outcome and how to shift that noble intent to maybe making choices that have less negative outcomes. Yeah. And then people acquire habits. Um, so habit lives in the striatum, but not just in that basal ganglia of the striatum. That's not the only place that habit lives. It turns out that we have this emotional learning system that does not involve the cortex and thinking about it. Uh, so um, the amygdala, for example, can react to situations that have caused pain in the past and can become in fact quite reactive uh, and develop a hair trigger for certain cues in the environment. Uh, so this uh, uh, frequent reactivity can result in behaviors which contribute to social defeat and uh, trying to get people out of those cycles of, of trying to engage, feeling disrespected, uh, becoming reactive, uh, causing the group to put up walls. And uh, that's just, yeah, it's a not a good cycle for people to be in. Mm -mm. I love that you brought up the amygdala, one of my favorite brain functions because it is so quick yes. and it's so protective and it's so fast and Correct. i've had people tell me that um you know in trainings and workshops i've heard people say oh you can't you can't change that the amygdala is going to do what the amygdala is going to do the best you can do is is try to coach people into breathing and different activities and then get a cognitive structure going to manage what the amygdala is doing and then i've heard other people say no you can you can train your amygdala you can learn to work with it so i'm curious i think so yeah um yeah my mind flashes back to this story about uh a man who was out hiking in arizona uh and he happened to be hiking along the top of a cliff and he encountered some bees and he was so afraid of the bees, he ended up jumping away from the bees, which unfortunately was off the cliff. Oh my gosh. And unfortunately he died. Um, so yeah, this is a real phenomenon that very often uh, the amygdala can override the cortex and get us to respond more quickly than we might otherwise. And this is a definite survival advantage unless it involves jumping off a cliff <laughs> and uh so me when i was a child i was going fishing with my family and we left the road and just stepped into the grass and i disturbed a, a harmless grass snake but it scared me and i jumped road and almost got hit and yeah. i was probably five or six yeah why I, I didn't enjoy fishing for a long time after that because i got yelled at so much because of course my parents were scared and they reacted with anger yeah um, but it was like oh yeah so these uh this emotional learning 
takes place. And so our response to things oftentimes is very quick uh, and it often involves suppression of frontal lobe activity. So it literally hijacks the brain and takes over for us to save our lives and which is very handy but sometimes when somebody who has had past trauma and past relationship difficulties uh, gets a triggering cue then this activity can can amp up so quickly that they become emotionally reactive and the frontal lobe and the reasoning system is offline so what we can work with is to uh so so unfortunately also a lot of people will deal with with these feelings these difficult feelings by not thinking about it by pushing it away and not thinking about it um, one way this happens with the panic grief system is that when fear sets in people are often unaware of the panic slash grief system and their attention is focused on the fear and then when the rage system activates then the thoughts about the injustice and unfairness occupies their attention and they're then unaware of the fear and that panic grief system so uh very often people cope with difficult situations uh and memories by just not thinking about it or by pushing away any thoughts related to fear or anger. And this sets us up to be hijacked more intensely and more often by these, these feelings when they arise. And so we call this PTSD. One of the biggest differences between uh, people that, that have had difficult experiences and the ones that, that don't develop PTSD, they allow those thoughts and feelings into their consciousness and they process, they process them and they figure out how to handle the situation should something similar happen uh, again. Whereas people that push away those thoughts and feelings, they are more likely to get ambushed and hijacked and do unexpected things. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast. Spirit Lake Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlakewellness.org.